If you would, go ahead and turn over to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. When I was in college at ECU, or at least the first time in 2008-2009, I worked as a utility teller for a bank. Part of my job was to count these huge deposits of cash. I'm talking hundreds of thousands of dollars per transaction uh, for a total of millions of dollars. And so I had to be in this very secure place to do this. And so to get to work, I had to have an access card that was keyed correctly. And so I drive up to this gated compound where I had to scan my card to get the gate to open. And so then I go in through the gate into this fenced-in area. And once I got through the gate, I had to use my card to get inside the building. And then once I got inside the building, once I got through that door... I had to use my card again to get into this this cage that I worked in. And you had to have your key card to get in through the door of the cage. But then once I got through the door of the cage, I had to know this combination to this gigantic big vault in which I worked. And so once I got the right combination, I was able to then walk through that door. And then there was a smaller vault within there that held all the money that I needed access to, and it had a different combination. And once I put that combination in correctly, then that door would be open to me where all the money was there. And so there was only a few people who had access to all of the things that I had access to. I think I was like one out of four or five. But in order to gain access, I had to have the right key. But you know, there's a greater reward, something that's far greater than anything that would be found in that vault. Jesus offers us the greatest possible reward. He told the church at Philadelphia that he has the key to the door and he has opened it wide for them because of their faithful endurance. And he offers the same to us today. The Philadelphian letter is a letter that any church should desire and would desire to receive from the Lord. It's a church that provides an excellent example of perseverance in the midst of testing. It is heavy on promises of a reward that focus the eye of the church on a future hope, on the future of hope of new Jerusalem and the great reversal of fortunes that awaits the church that is faithful. And so it communicates a powerful message for all believers. Now, we all go through times when we need words of hope from Christ, and perhaps this is one of those times with this COVID-19 situation. Perhaps you are in need of hope from Christ. Maybe you're one who has a family member in the hospital, and you're needing hope from Christ. Maybe you have just lost a family member or a friend, and you're needing hope from Christ. But let me tell you this. Our future is bright if we endure to the end. So let me start off by giving you some background on Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia lies about 30 miles southeast of Sardis, which we studied uh, last week. It was founded in the 2nd century B.C. by Italus II, who named it Philadelphos, or Brother Love, because of his great love for a brother named Eumenes. It was destroyed by a great earthquake in the year A.D. 17, And it was rebuilt with assistance from uh, Caesar Tiberius. And so it became this great, prosperous, enduring city. Philadelphia also subsequently 
earned the nickname Little Athens because of all its pagan temples and cults. And so the threats that were against the faithfulness of the church in Philadelphia are similar to those that in the churches that we studied so far, which emphasizes the character of the Philadelphian believers as remarkable because they have endured. So I want you to, to note that Jesus does not have anything negative to say against this church. But he starts off with a great promise to them. Let's look beginning in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, thus says the Holy One, the True One, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Jesus opens the door for us. He opens the door to new life. Jesus has opened the door to new life for us, and we're going to see what that means. But we're going to start off by seeing what, we, what Jesus wants to reveal about himself. And the thing that Jesus wants to reveal about himself is that you can trust him. You can trust what Jesus says because of who Jesus is. So as Jesus begins to address the church at Philadelphia, notice that this is the first time that he doesn't pull imagery from Revelation chapter 1. But instead he refers to himself as the Holy One and the True One. Both of these terms are normally applied to God the Father. In fact, if you flip over to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, it directly applies the same terms that Jesus uses here to describe himself to God the Father. Throughout the scriptures, God is referred to as holy and true. I want us to look at these two ideas real quick. God is referred to as holy in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 where it says, And one angel, or one seraphim, called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Notice the characteristic of God that is emphasized there in God's throne room by the seraphim, by the angels, is His holiness. So what is holiness? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2 says, There is no one... Like the Lord, there is no one beside you, and there is no rock like our God. As creator, God is separate from and different from everything that's in his creation. There's nothing like him in all the earth. And this is one of the reasons the Trinity is so difficult for us to comprehend and to accurately understand, because we can't do it. There is nothing like it that we can accurately compare with in all of creation. We can't say, well, the Trinity is like this, because that's not correct. We can't say that the Trinity is like water, because water has three different forms. It's ice when it's solid, and it's, and it's steam when it's gas, and it, when it's liquid, we just call it water. That's not like God. It's an analogy that falls short, because there is nothing like our God. 
In fact, that particular uh, analogy has been deemed by the church for centuries as a teaching of heresy of modalism. That, that God comes in one mode as the Father and He reveals Himself in another mode as the Son and then He reveals Himself in another mode as the Holy Spirit, which is not biblically accurate. And so all of our analogies fall short because there's no one like our God. There's nothing like our God in all of the earth. There's nothing like our God in all of creation for He is holy, holy, holy. He is different from His creation. But not only is He holy, but He's also the God of truth. Psalm 86 verse 15 says, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. The Oxford Dictionary defines truth as that which is true or in accordance with fact or reality. You know that God will act in accordance with the truth. He abounds in truth. Everything that He says is true. Everything that He promises will come to fruition. And so as you read the promises God made in the Old Testament, and then you read the rest of the Scriptures and see how they are proven to be true as history unravels, there can be no doubt that what God says, what Yahweh says, is true true, and it is in accordance with reality. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 16 says, Whoever asks for a blessing in the land will ask for a blessing by the God of truth. And whoever swears in the land will swear by the God of truth, for the former troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my sight. And so they, the people would ask for a blessing by the God of truth, because they knew that if He would bless them, it would be a true blessing. They would swear by the God of truth, because to swear in the God of truth would mean that it was true. And so here Jesus combines these two characteristics of God the Father, and He applies them to Himself. And He can do this because He is God. He is the second person of the triune God. He is God the Son, And this is in opposition to what the Jewish leaders in Philadelphia are claiming. Jesus claims divinity, that He is God. While the Jewish synagogue denies that Jesus could be the Son of God. Jesus assures the church of Philadelphia that He is God, and so the church can therefore take comfort in the fact that what Jesus is saying is the truth. And as God the Son, He has both the authority and the power to proclaim the truth of these promises to the believers both in Philadelphia, but also to all the local churches throughout history. Jesus can be trusted. Jesus also has authority. He has the authority to say these things. He has the authority to open doors that only He can open and leave them open and and shut doors that... He wants shut and no one can open them. And so he goes on to say that he is the one who possesses the key of David. And he is the one who has the authority to make sure things are done the way that he wants them to be done. And so he is alluding here to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, where he says, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. 
But see, Jesus is not just divine. Yes, He's 100% God. But He's not just divine. He's also 100% human. And He is of the lineage of King David of Israel through His mother Mary. And so He has received these two natures of divine and human. God the Father made this promise on Isaiah to the line of David... And, and God made a covenant promise with David that one of his descendants would rule for Israel forever. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He is the messianic king in the line of David that lives forever and rules forever. And he has therefore the authority both as God, his divine side, and as human, he has the Davidic kingship, the, the Davidic role to, to be allowed to have the authority to distribute the resources of God's kingdom to whomever He wills. And so He has the authority to employ the key of David. He says He employs this key for the good of His faithful church. And so Jesus opens the door to the faithful. Jesus opens the door to the faithful. The question arises, what does this door refer to? Jesus opens the door to new life in the New Jerusalem. Now, we'll talk more about the New Jerusalem in just a little bit, but know this for now. It is glorious, but it is only open to the faithful. Jesus regards the church of Philadelphia as worthy of entry because they have remained faithful to Him despite their little power. Notice with me two points He makes about their faithfulness. First of all, he says that they have kept his word. He says, I know your works, that you have little power, yet you have kept my word. In contrast to some of these other churches that we have studied, the church at Philadelphia have held tight to the teachings of Christ. They have not allowed the culture to sway their understanding of the truths about the nature of Jesus. They have not allowed their doctrinal convictions to falter. They have not allowed contrary teachings to crop up in the church. They have remained steadfastly committed to the teachings of Jesus and to the teachings of the apostles. They also have not denied His name. He says, You have kept my word and have not denied my name. So despite the pressure from the local Jewish population, the believers in Philadelphia had remained faithful to Jesus' name and therefore faithful to Him. They have successfully resisted not only pagan practices, not only the imperial cult, but also the pressure to deny the deity of Christ that comes from the Jews. And so the Jews had likely reported the believers to the Roman government saying, well, hey, they're unpatriotic. They're disloyal to the emperor. And so they were likely threatened with a physical martyrdom, that they would die. They were probably threatened with economic boycott. We're not going to buy anything from you, and you're going to cease to be able to provide for yourself. And, and of course, with that comes material poverty. They faced all of these threats, yet they had remained faithful to Christ. Even though they had little power, they were not some major player in their city that could could throw their weight around and say, well, that's fine, we're 
we're big, we're strong, we're powerful, we're the SBC, we have the greatest number of Christians in all of the United States, we can throw our power around and do what we want. No, they had little power. They lacked influence in their culture. But they were committed to Christ. So he commends them for it. Thank you, good job. My faithful church, you have held to my teaching, you have held to my name, and therefore I will open the door for you, and no one can close it. Jesus will turn the tables. Because of their faithfulness, Jesus promised the church that he would come and reverse their current situation. Look at verse 9. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. The people who were were persecuting the church are Jews, and Jesus promised the church that he's going to come and reverse their current situation. Because the Jews believed they were God's chosen people. And they were. They were God's chosen people to bring the blessing of God to the nations. But throughout their history, they had failed time and time again to remain faithful to God. And they had failed time and time again to bring other nations to God. Instead, they had become like the nations. Instead of bringing the nations to God, they lowered themselves to become like the other nations around them. In fact, they had become so averse of the knowledge of God that when God Himself came to dwell among them as a man in the person of Jesus Christ, they did not know Him. Even though Jesus, the God-man, spent 33 years among them and taught them about the kingdom of God, they did not recognize Him as God. In fact, They murdered him by hanging him on a Roman cross until he was as dead as a doornail and was laid in a tomb. They thought they had victory over this blasphemer who claimed to be God. But Christ demonstrated that he was truly God. When on the third day he walked forth from the grave and he appeared to hundreds of people in a physical body, He declared, I am God. Jesus turned the tables on these Jews and he promised the church in Philadelphia that he was going to trip them up again. For no longer were the Jews the chosen ones, but now the church had become the chosen. And when the time comes, Jesus is going to turn the tables on them. The ones that are persecuting the church will instead be the ones bowing at their feet. And this would be something that appears to be backwards for these Jews because they expected for all people to bow down before them. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, written to, the, written to the Jews. The sons of your oppressors will come and bow down to you. All who reviled you will fall face down at your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And so these Jews believe that the church was full of unbelieving Gentiles. But Christ shows that he regards the church 
to be the true people of God. And this synagogue of Satan is what he calls them. They had turned so completely from God, away from God, that they could not even recognize him when he was among them. And instead of honoring him and exalting him as they should have, they instead persecute the people of the Lamb. And Jesus says that they will know that he has loved the church. It's an interesting turn. Because so far, Jesus has only spoken in writing to these churches about the people's love for him. And love in the Bible is associated with obedience. The true people of God will display their love of God by their obedience to his commands. Jesus does not love the Jewish synagogue because of their failure to love him, their failure to obey his commands. Yet he loves the church at Philadelphia because of their obedience to him. The believers in Philadelphia truly love Jesus, and they show that by their actions. And so, therefore, Jesus declares his love for them. Look with me at verse 10. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. See, Jesus will protect his church. Jesus will protect his church. Later chapters of the book of Revelation reveal that Christ will return to judge the whole world. Many refer to this time as the tribulation. It is a time when God will send a series of plagues upon the earth, similar to the plagues he sent upon the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. And there are differing theories on what is to happen during this time, and the truth is we don't know exactly, completely, what is going to happen and what it all means. But what is abundantly clear is that when God sends this judgment, His protection will be on the faithful. Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, Don't harm the sea, the earth, or the sea, or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. Revelation 9, 4, the angels, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. Note that this is in reference to the plagues of God, not to the persecution from the enemy. For the believers facing persecution, there is a hope inherent in these words. Right now, they are facing the persecution of people. But the time is coming when God will judge all the world with plagues. But the faithful believer does not have to fear that day, for Jesus will protect his own, those who are faithful, those whom he loves, by having an angel place seals of protection on them. An intense time of testing will come upon those who have persecuted God's church and God's people. Therefore, Jesus encourages the church with the words, I am coming soon. This should be a great encouragement to the faithful, but it's also a strong warning to those who are not, for Jesus is coming soon. Peter wrote, The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So therefore, repent 
of your sin and call upon the name of the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, because the writer of Hebrews says, for yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. Jesus commands his church to continue to persevere so that no one can steal from them the reward that awaits them. And the wise course of action for the church is to hold fast to the promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We await his return for the fulfillment of the promise he has given to us. Habakkuk 2 verse 3, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. When the time is right, God will send Christ back. He will return. And we look forward to that day as believers. Because the tables will be turned. But if you're one who's not living in accordance with the Scriptures, who's not being faithful to God, it should be a time of fear. For He will turn the tables. Revelation 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. See, Jesus provides an eternal security for the believers. For the faithful believers, Jesus provides eternal security in the new Jerusalem. When He returns, He will come and He will completely fulfill our salvation. Right now we are in this not yet, but already things going on. We are already justified. We're in the process of sanctification, but we're not going to ever get to that perfection until He returns. And when He returns, He will set all things as they should be. For now He has left us as He ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And as we eagerly mourn and we eagerly await His return, He has sent us the Holy Spirit as a down payment of what is to come. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit until the day of His return. But when He comes again, He will set all things right. And He will establish the faithful's place in New Jerusalem. Jesus establishes the faithful's place in New Jerusalem. Can I tell you something that most evangelicals dismiss? Our inheritance is not heaven. Let me say that again. Our inheritance is not heaven. Our inheritance is a new glorious body in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. Listen to to what Paul writes about this. I'm going to read several passages that Paul has written about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. Notice he uses the term tent versus building, something temporary versus something which is enduring. An eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling. Since when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. 
Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So when the believer dies, we leave this earthly tent, we leave our our mortal bodies, our our bodies are laid in the ground and our spirit is with the Lord for a time while we await the fulfillment of the redemption of creation and the resurrection of the body. Paul continues to write in 1 Corinthians 15, Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be, or this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and the mortal body is clothed with immortality. Then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters concerning those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still asleep at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have already fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see, we'll have a a resurrected body. We'll have a body that was made perfect, the corruptible in our body will become incorruptible, and the mortal will become immortal, and we will dwell in the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God. See, God is concerned about the physical. See, the curse of Genesis 3.19 that says, you will be laid in the dust. When you die, you will return to the earth from which you were taken. But if we look back at, at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, he, he formed us out of the ground. We were supposed to be out of the earth. But the curse came and, and we, we die and we're placed back in the earth. But when the time is right and Jesus returns, we will experience a bodily resurrection. We'll have new life in our bodies. We'll have a new, incorruptible, immortal body not stained by sin. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected in a physical body, so also will we. We will not just go and live in heaven forever, but we will be returned to the earth, to a new earth in the new Jerusalem. No longer will we die and return to the ground, but we'll be out of the earth and we'll be perfect. And we will dwell forever in the house of the Lord as pillars of his temple. Because Jesus writes his name on the faithful. Not only will we receive the physical blessings of of living in the new Jerusalem with a new, incorruptible, immortal body, but we will bear the name of Christ 
forever. We will be his possession for all time. We will be welcome into the place where the true people of God belong. We will be co-heirs with Christ in his glory. So Jesus holds this great key that allows access to this greatest reward, far greater than anything we might lock up in a vault. He holds the key to the new Jerusalem. He holds the key to the holy city that comes down from heaven when Christ has returned and he has, he has conquered all evil and he returns creation to its original perfection and the curse is gone and death is gone and we're no longer being laid back into the earth but we stay out of it. The door is open for those who are faithful to him. Are you one of those. Are you faithful to Him? Have you placed your faith in the redemptive work of Christ? He came to earth as a man. He added to His divinity full humanity. He became subject to the curse of man. He was like us in every way but without sin. He taught us about the kingdom of God and in His crucifixion He made the atonement needed by taking our punishment upon Himself as our substitute. He endured the wrath of God so that we might be pardoned for our sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb because He was dead as a doornail, but He rose three days later from the grave alive again, the first fruits of the resurrection awaiting all believers. He appeared to many before He ascended into heaven where He now awaits the time sitting at the right hand of the Father awaiting the time of His return where He will come and He will bring full redemption for us. He will redeem us to Himself. So are you ready? Have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus for your salvation? If you haven't, today's the day to do that. Let me tell you how. Scripture says we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we are to believe that He did all those things, which the Bible tells us, which I just told you. We're to believe that Jesus was God, and we are to believe that He died, and we're to believe that He rose again, and we're to believe that in doing all of this, He paid the penalty for our sins which we could not pay ourselves. So that we might have eternal salvation. So that we might have eternal life with Him in the new Jerusalem. If you haven't done that and you would like to do so, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. Here's how you do so. Pray to God. Father God, I have sinned greatly against you. I have rebelled against you and done my own thing. I have not lived for you. God, I am not worthy of eternal life. But your Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, He is. And He died on my cross taking my punishment that was due me for my sin. I confess that He is the resurrected Savior and He alone can bring my salvation and I place my faith and my trust and my hope in Him.
And we know that when we pray that prayer, that He gives us the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a, as a down payment for the redemption that is to come. So we pray this in the holy and precious name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. So if you prayed that prayer, you can be saved. But, but it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. You're just justified by doing so. You have to still work in the time in between now and, and the return of Christ in our sanctification, becoming more like Christ. See, salvation isn't, isn't just a one-time event. It's a decision you make every day to follow Christ, to remain faithful to Him. If we're faithful, He'll open the door. Have you placed your faith and trust in Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your scripture. God, that you encourage us through it, encourage us to be faithful, you challenge us to be faithful, but you also provide the encouragement that, God, if we keep our eyes focused on on the future and and on the eternity and what is to come, God, we can live through, we can persevere through whatever situation we're facing in our, our bodily persecution, our bodily affliction. We can persevere because we have a hope in the return of your Son. Thank you for your word. Pray this in the holy and precious name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.